You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCB Neutral. Check out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll also find a link there to send me a message and some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. A letter from Daniel Hale to Judge O'Grady filed in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. Exhibit A. 18 July 2021. Quote, we now kill people without ever seeing them. Now you push a button thousands of miles away. Since it's all done by remote control, there's no remorse. And then we come home in triumph. U.S. Navy Admiral Jean Laroc speaking to a reporter in 1995. Dear Judge O'Grady, It is not a secret that I struggle to live with depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. Both stem from my childhood experience growing up in a rural mountain community and were compounded by exposure to combat during military service. Depression is a constant. Though stress, particularly stress caused by war, can manifest itself at different times and in different ways. The telltale signs of a person afflicted by PTSD and depression can often be outwardly observed and are practically universally recognizable. Hard lines about the face and jaw. Eyes once bright and wide, now deep-set and fearful. And an inexplicably sudden loss of interest in things that used to spark joy. These are the noticeable changes in my demeanor, marked by those who knew me before and after military service. To say that the period of my life spent serving in the United States Air Force had an impression on me would be an understatement. It is more accurate to say that it irreversibly transformed my identity as an American. Having forever altered the thread of my life story weaved into the fabric of our nation's history, To better appreciate the significance of how this came to pass, I would like to explain my experience deployed to Afghanistan as it was in 2012 and how it is I came to violate the Espionage Act as a result. In my capacity as a signals intelligence analyst stationed at Bagram Air Base, I was made to track down the geographic location of handset cell phone devices believed to be in the possession of so-called enemy combatants. To accomplish this mission required access to a complex chain of globe-spanning satellites capable of maintaining an unbroken connection with remotely piloted aircraft, commonly referred to as drones. Once a steady connection is made and a targeted cell phone device is acquired, an imagery analyst in the U.S. in coordination with a drone pilot and camera operator would take over using information I provided to surveil everything that occurred within the drone's field of vision. This was done most often to document the day-to-day lives of suspected militants. Sometimes, under the right conditions, an attempt at capture would be made. Other times, a decision to strike and kill them where they stood would be weighed. The first time that I witnessed a drone strike came within days of my arrival to Afghanistan. Early that morning, before dawn, a group of men had gathered together in the mountain ranges of Patika province around a campfire, carrying weapons and brewing tea. That they carried weapons with them would not have been considered out of the ordinary in the place I grew up, much less 
within the virtually lawless tribal territories outside the control of the Afghan authorities. Except that among them was a suspected member of the Taliban, given away by the targeted cell phone device in his pocket. As for the remaining individuals, to be armed of military age and sitting in the presence of an alleged en enemy combatant was enough evidence to place them under suspicion as well. Despite having peacefully assembled, posing no threat, the fate of the now tea-drinking men had all but been fulfilled. I could only look on as I sat by and watched through a computer monitor when a sudden terrifying flurry of hellfire missiles came crashing down, splattering purple-colored crystal guts on the side of the morning mountain. Since that time and to this day, I continue to recall several such scenes of graphic violence carried out from the cold comfort of a computer chair. Not a day goes by that I don't question the justification for my actions. By the rules of engagement, it may have been permissible for me to have helped to kill those men whose language I did not speak, customs I did not understand, and crimes I could not identify, in the gruesome manner that I did watch them die. But how could it be considered honorable of me to continuously have laid in wait for the next opportunity to kill unsuspecting persons who, more often than not, are posing no danger to me or any other person at the time? Never mind honorable, how could it be that any thinking person continued to believe that it was necessary for the protection of the United States of America to be in Afghanistan and killing people? not one of whom present was responsible for the September 11th attacks on our nation. Notwithstanding in 2012, a full year after the demise of Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, I was a part of killing misguided young men who were but mere children on the day of 9-11. Nevertheless, in spite of my better instincts, I continued to follow orders and obey my command, for fear of repercussion. Yet all the while becoming increasingly aware that the war had very little to do with preventing terror from coming into the United States, and a lot more to do with protecting the profits of weapons manufacturers and so-called defense contractors. The evidence of this fact was laid bare all around me. In the longest and most technologically advanced war in American history, Contract mercenaries outnumbered uniform-wearing soldiers two to one and earned as much as ten times their salary. Meanwhile, it did not matter whether it was, as I had seen, an Afghan farmer blown in half, yet miraculously conscious and pointlessly trying to scoop his insides off the ground, or whether it was an American flag-draped coffin lowered into Arlington National Cemetery to the sound of a 21-gun salute. Bang, bang, bang. Both served to justify the easy flow of capital at the cost of blood, theirs and ours. When I think about this, I am grief-stricken and ashamed of myself for the things that I've done to support it. The most harrowing day of my life came months into my deployment to Afghanistan when a routine surveillance mission turned into disaster. For weeks, we had been tracking the movements of a ring of car bomb manufacturers living around Jalalabad. Car bombs directed at U.S. bases had become an increasingly frequent and deadly problem that summer. So much effort was put into stopping them. It was a windy and clouded afternoon when one of the suspects had been discovered, headed eastbound, driving at a high rate of speed. This alarmed my superiors, who believe he might be attempting to escape across the border into Pakistan. A drone strike was our only chance, and already it began lining up to take the shot. But the less advanced Predator drone found it difficult to see through clouds and compete against strong headwinds. The single payload MQ-1 failed to connect with its target, instead missing by a few meters. The vehicle, damaged but still drivable, continued on ahead after narrowly avoiding destruction. Eventually, 
Once the concern of another incoming missile subsided, the driver stopped, got out of the car, and checked himself as though he could not believe he was still alive. Out of the passenger side came a woman wearing an unmistakable burqa. As astounding as it was to have just learned there had been a woman, possibly his wife, there with the man we intended to kill moments ago. I did not have the chance to see what happened next, before the drone diverted its camera, when she began frantically to pull out something from the back of the car. A couple of days passed before I finally learned from a briefing by my commanding officer about what took place. There indeed had been the suspect's wife with him in the car, and in the back were their two young daughters, ages five and three years old. A cadre of Afghan soldiers were sent to investigate where the car had stopped the following day. It was there they found them placed in the dumpster nearby. The eldest was found dead due to unspecified wounds caused by shrapnel that pierced her body. Her younger sister was alive but severely dehydrated. As my commanding officer relayed this information to us, she seemed to express disgust, not for the fact that we had errantly fired on a man and his family, having killed one of his daughters, but for the suspected bomb maker having ordered his wife to dump the bodies of their daughters in the trash, so that the two of them could more quickly escape across the border. Now, whenever I encounter an individual who thinks that drone warfare is justified and reliably keeps America safe, I remember that time, and I ask myself, how could I possibly continue to believe that I am a good person, deserving of my life and the right to pursue happiness? One year later, at a farewell gathering for those of us who would soon be leaving military service. I sat alone, transfixed by the television, while others reminisced together. On television was breaking news of the president giving his first public remarks about the policy surrounding the use of drone technology in warfare. His remarks were made to reassure the public of reports scrutinizing the deaths of civilians in drone strikes and the targeting of American citizens. The president said that a high standard of, quote, near certainty needed to be met in order to ensure that no civilians were present. But from what I knew, of the instances where civilians plausibly could have been present, those killed were nearly always designated enemies killed in action, unless proven otherwise. Nonetheless, I continued to heed his words as the president went on to explain how a drone could be used to eliminate someone who posed an, quote, imminent threat to the United States. Using the analogy of taking out a sniper with his sights set on an unassuming crowd of people, the president likened the use of drones to prevent a would-be terrorist from carrying out his evil plot. But as I understood it to be, the unassuming crowd had been those who lived in fear and terror of drones in their skies, and the sniper in this scenario had been me. I came to believe that the policy of drone assassination was being used to mislead the public that it kept us safe, and when I finally left the military, still processing what I'd been a part of, I began to speak out, believing my participation in the drone program to have been deeply wrong. I dedicated myself to anti-war activism and was asked to partake in a peace conference in Washington, D.C., late November 2013. People had come together from around the world to share experiences about what it is like living in the age of drones. Fazil bin Ali Jaber had journeyed from Yemen to tell us of what happened to his brother, Salem bin Ali Jaber, and their cousin, Walid. Walid had been a policeman, and Salem was a well-respected firebrand imam, known for giving sermons to young men about the path towards destruction should they choose to take up violent jihad. One day in August 2012, local members of Al-Qaeda traveling through Fazil's village in a car, spotted Salem in the shade, pulled up towards him, and beckoned him to come over and speak to them. Not one to miss an opportunity to evangelize to the youth, Salem proceeded cautiously with Walid by his side. 
Fazil and other villagers began looking on from afar. Farther still was an ever-present reaper drone looking too. As Fazil recounted what happened next, I felt myself transported back in time to where I had been on that day, 2012. Unbeknownst to Fazil and those of his village at the time was that they had not been the only ones watching Salem approach the jihadists in the car. From Afghanistan, I and everyone on duty paused their work to witness the carnage that was about to unfold. At the press of a button, from thousands of miles away, two Hellfire missiles screeched out of the sky, followed by two more. Showing no signs of remorse, I and those around me clapped and cheered triumphantly. In front of a speechless auditorium, Fazil wept. About a week after the peace conference, I received a lucrative job offer if I were to come back and work as a government contractor. I felt uneasy about the idea. Up to that point, my only plan post-military separation had been to enroll in college to complete my degree. But the money I could make was by far more than I had ever made before. In fact, it was more than any of my college-educated friends were making. So after giving it careful consideration, I delayed going to school for a semester and took the job. For a long time, I was uncomfortable with myself over the thought of taking advantage of my military background to land a cushy desk job. During that time, I was still processing what I had been through, and I was starting to wonder if I was contributing again to the problem of money and war by accepting to return as a defense contractor. Worse was my growing apprehension that everyone around me was also taking part in a collective delusion and denial that was used to justify our exorbitant salaries for comparatively easy labor. The thing I feared most at the time was that the temptation was the temptation not to question it. Then it came to be that one day after work, I stuck around to socialize with a pair of co-workers whose talented work I had come to greatly admire. They made me feel welcomed and I was happy to have earned their approval. But then to my dismay, our brand new friendship took an unexpectedly dark turn. They elected that we should take a moment and view together some archived footage of past drone strikes. Such bonding ceremonies around a computer to watch so-called war porn had not been new to me. I partook in them all the time while deployed to Afghanistan. But on that day, years after the fact, my new friends gaped and sneered, just as my old ones had, at the sight of faceless men in the final moments of their lives. I sat by watching too, said nothing, and felt my heart breaking into pieces. Your Honor, the truest truism that I've come to understand about the nature of war is that war is trauma. I believe that any person either called upon or coerced to participate in war against their fellow man is promised to be exposed to some form of trauma. In that way, no soldier blessed to have returned home from war does so uninjured. The crux of PTSD that it is a moral conundrum that afflicts invisible wounds on the psyche of a person made to burden the weight of experience after surviving a traumatic event. How PTSD manifests depends on the circumstances of the event. So how is a drone operator to process this? The victorious rifleman, unquestioningly remorseful, at least keeps his honor intact by having faced off against his enemy on the battlefield. The determined fighter pilot has the luxury of not having to witness the gruesome aftermath. But what possibly could I have done to cope with the undeniable cruelties that I perpetrated? My conscience, once held at bay, came roaring back to life. At first I tried to ignore it, wishing instead that someone better placed than I should come along to take this cup from me. But this, too, was folly. Left to decide whether to act, I only could do that which I ought to do before God and my own conscience. The answer came to me that to stop the cycle of violence, I ought to sacrifice my own life and not that of another person.
so I contacted an investigative reporter with whom I had an established prior relationship and told him that I had something the American people needed to know. Respectfully, Daniel Hale. And here's an excerpt from a piece published at TheIntercept.com written by Ryan Devereaux. Daniel Hale was indicted by a grand jury and arrested in 2019 on a series of counts related to the unauthorized disclosure of national defense and intelligence information and the theft of government property. Hale was charged under the Espionage Act, a highly controversial 1917 law that has become a favored tool of federal prosecutors pursuing cases of national security leaks. The law bars the accused from using motivations such as informing the public as a defense against incarceration. And yet, Hale's alleged personal motivations and character came up repeatedly in a sentencing memo filed this week, with prosecutors arguing that he was enamored of journalists and that as a result, quote, the most vicious terrorists in the world obtained top secret documents. The prosecution also argued that Hale's disclosures did not serve a significant public interest. Legal experts focused on the drone program strongly dispute the prosecution's claim that Hale's disclosures did not provide a significant public service. Indeed, for many experts, shedding light on a lethal program that the government had tried to keep from public scrutiny for years is vital. Quote, the disclosures provided important information to the American public about a killing program that has virtually no transparency or accountability and has taken a devastating toll on civilian lives abroad in the name of national security, said Priyanka Modaparthi, director of the Counterterrorism, Armed Conflict, and Human Rights Project at Columbia Law School. They helped reveal how some of the most harmful impacts of this program, in particular the civilian toll, were obscured and hidden. Thanks in large part to the government's efforts to keep the drone program under tight secrecy, the task of calculating the human impact of the program has been left to investigative journalists and independent monitoring groups. The numbers that these groups have compiled over the years show a staggering human cost of these operations. The UK-based Bureau of Investigative Journalism, or TBIJ, estimates the total number of deaths from drones and other covert killing operations in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Yemen, and Somalia to run between 8,858 and 16,901 since strikes began to be carried out in 2004. Of those killed, as many as 2,200 are believed to have been civilians, including several hundred children and multiple U.S. citizens, including a 16-year-old boy. The tallies of civilian casualties are undoubtedly an undercount of the true cost of the drone war, as Hale's letter to the court this week and the documents he allegedly made public show. The people who are killed in American drone strikes are routinely classified as enemies killed in action, unless proven otherwise. Daniel Hale has been convicted and has been sentenced to 45 months in prison. And here is a piece written by Jake Johnson, published at Common Dreams and at truthout.org. A trio of senators, including Bernie Sanders of Vermont, issued a statement late Thursday condemning the U.S. military's drone strike in Somalia earlier this week the first known bombing of the East African country since President Joe Biden took office in January. Quote, We're troubled that no one in the administration sought the required legal authorization from Congress for Tuesday's drone strike in Somalia, especially with no American forces at risk, and apparently did not even check with our commander-in-chief, Sanders and Independent said in a joint statement with Senators Chris Murphy and Mike Lee. We need to reestablish a system of checks and balances in our national security to make Congress a part of these decisions about war and peace, and put the interests of the American people front and center, said the three senators, who earlier this week 
unveiled legislation aimed at reasserting congressional authority over war powers. It's time to do away with questionable legal justifications claimed by one administration after the next for acts of war like this. The drone strike in Somalia was carried out by the U.S. military's Africa Command, or AFRICOM, which claimed in an emailed statement to media outlets that the strike targeted al-Shabaab militants who were purportedly attacking members of a U.S.-trained Somali commando force. The Biden administration, which like its predecessors, has been accused of drastically undercounting civilian deaths in U.S. military operations, said no civilians were injured or killed in the latest airstrike. The transparency organization Air Wars estimates that U.S. military action have killed between 70 and 143 civilians in Somalia since 2007, when the Bush administration kicked off a bombing campaign that accelerated under Obama and continued under Trump. According to Somali state media, the latest U.S. strike killed at least 20 al-Shabaab militants and wounded many more. While there were no U.S. forces accompanying the Somali commando force as it allegedly came under attack Tuesday, Pentagon spokesperson Cindy King justified the drone strike as, quote, collective self-defense, a rationale that drew scrutiny from legal experts. Quote, I'm surprised Biden's first airstrike in Somalia isn't getting more attention, said Una Hathaway, a professor of international law at Yale University. AFRICOM carried out the strike against al-Shabaab militants, and the administration is citing collective self-defense. This is very puzzling. Collective self-defense is an international law term, Hathaway explained. Under Article 51 of the UN Charter, a state can take an action in collective self-defense of another state. But that only applies if the action might otherwise violate Article 2, Section 4. But that's not the case here. So what's going on? Is this somehow to get around new restrictions on drone strikes? On its first day in power, the Biden administration quietly imposed temporary constraints on so-called counterterrorism strikes outside of, quote, conventional war zones, as the New York Times reported in March. The administration's order required the military and CIA to, quote, obtain White House permission to attack terrorism suspects in nations where there are few U.S. ground troops, including Somalia. But the Pentagon insists that AFRICOM did not need White House approval for the latest drone strike because the military, quote, has the authority to conduct strikes in support of designated partner forces under collective self-defense. As Stars and Stripes reported Tuesday, the last previous drone strikes in Somalia, quote, were carried out January 18 and 19, just days after the U.S. military completed its withdrawal of some 700 troops from the country, under Trump's orders. According to the Times, the Pentagon is currently, quote, developing a proposal to send dozens of special forces trainers back to Somalia to help local forces combat al-Shabaab. This next piece is by Stephen Keener and is published at fair.org. Urban crime is a golden child of local media, as recent fair coverage has shown. But FAIR's Julie Haller recently noted the amount of attention given to a topic does not always reflect the seriousness of the situation. An alleged, quote, crime surge at Walgreens drugstores in San Francisco was a hot topic for Bay Area news outlets in the early months of 2021, when Leanne Melendez, a reporter for the ABC-owned KGO-TV in San Francisco, tweeted out a cell phone video of a brazen shoplifter. It elevated this narrative into a nationwide story. The video purports to show a man apparently filling a garbage bag with items before riding a bicycle out of the store, as two people, one of whom seems to be a store security guard, record him. Fair identified 309 published pieces on the 21-second video using a combination of Nexus and Google Advanced Search to find every article published by a news outlet from the video's publication on June 14 to July 12, a 28-day time frame. Compare this to another Walgreens-related theft story. 
the November settlement of a wage theft and labor law violation class action lawsuit against Walgreens, filed by employees in California for $4.5 million. A multi-million dollar settlement coming after two, a two-year legal struggle. This should have been a national news story, not to mention a major topic in local California outlets. But FAIR was unable to find a single general news outlet that covered the settlement. Looking from November 2020 to July 2021, using the same search parameters as the aforementioned shoplifting video. As court documents explained, Walgreens agreed to create a common fund after allegedly violating California's labor code. Quote, Plaintiff alleged that defendants rounded down employees' hours on their time cards, required employees to pass through security checks before and after their shift without compensating them for time, and failed to pay premium wages to employees who were denied legally required meal breaks. While San Francisco admittedly has a higher crime rate compared to many major cities in the United States, this rate has been decreasing even amidst a global pandemic. Quote, While San Francisco's crime rates did deviate from previous trends in 2020, most types of violent crime actually plummeted, and all violent crime rates remain near the lowest levels since 1975. But not only is this context consistently brushed over in news reports, much of the coverage connected to this video could lead one to believe the complete opposite, as in the San Francisco Chronicle. Quote, For years, John Susoff walked from his home two blocks to the Walgreens at Bush and Larkin Streets to pick up prescriptions for himself and for less mobile neighbors, to get a new phone card, and to snag senior discounts the first Tuesday of the month. That changed in March when Walgreens, ravaged by shoplifting, closed. Susof, 77, who sometimes uses a cane, now goes six blocks for medication and other necessities. Much of the narrative around the story of San Francisco's crimes relates back to 2014, when California voters approved Proposition 47. Prop 47 reclassified several nonviolent offenses as misdemeanors rather than felonies. This included any instances of shoplifting at or below $950. Data SF's crime database includes the June 14th incident, listing it as theft, shoplifting, $200 to $950, meaning that the maximum possible cost of the merchandise allegedly stolen was $950. While basic arithmetic would indicate that $4.5 million is greater than $950. Media have demonstrated that the question isn't how much is being stolen, but who it is being stolen from. Obviously, the shoplifting video is supposed to represent multiple examples of retail theft to boost awareness about shoplifting as a larger issue. But the wage theft settlement is also one example of a widespread issue. Employers stealing from their workers is a $15 billion a year problem that gets little attention. San Francisco is a city that falls far short in caring for the homeless population, with pervasive poverty, particularly among people of color. In that context, to treat an individual stealing a few hundred dollars from a corporation worth $150 billion as infinitely more newsworthy than that same company stealing millions from its employees is to enlist the media on the well-funded side of the class war. Update. After the publication of this post, a Bloomberg Law story covering the Walgreens wage theft settlement was pointed out to us, bringing the total number of wage theft stories to one. This gives us a ratio of wage theft stories to shoplifting bicyclist stories of 1 to 309. In terms of value stolen per article published, assuming the maximum amount of $950 in goods was stolen in the bicycle video, the value per article would be around $3. The wage theft produced one article per $4.5 million stolen. In other words, per dollar stolen, the June 14 petty theft received nearly 1.5 million times as much coverage as the wage theft settlement. 
Next up, a piece written by Patrick Jolney. This is published at movemientocoseca.medium.com. I have been detained by ICE at the Bergen County Jail in New Jersey since May 2019. The conditions here are horrible. It's always too cold, sometimes so cold I can't sleep, and they limit the clothing items you can have. The sheets are dirty. I've found maggots and hair in my food. During COVID, everything has gotten worse. The guards won't wear masks, and if you ask about that, they threaten you. So many of us have gotten sick. Some days, I don't think I can take it anymore. I could not do it without my wife, Laura, my forever. We met in high school. I was a football player, and she was on the track team. She is so strong. She helps keep me calm. She helps me worry less. Her weekly visits are my lifeline. When we're together, even though since COVID, it has been no contact visits, separated by plexiglass, it's the only time we have real peace. We can smile and laugh, and in her eyes I can escape for a moment. I live in daily fear that ICE will transfer me to another detention center. Apart from being deported, that is my greatest fear, because I would lose those visits with Laura. I would lose the one thing that makes this hellhole bearable for me. ICE uses transfers as a weapon, just like they use deportations. When someone complains, suddenly there is paperwork and they are gone in the middle of the night. They have deported people who have stays of deportation. They transfer people who went on hunger strike. It's definitely a weapon meant to keep us from speaking out against the abuses. And the constant fear that I could be next is a deliberate part of what I can only call terror tactics. But I will not be intimidated. I'm telling my story because me and Laura are fighting back. We are part of a much bigger fight to stop the transfers and ultimately to stop our country from caging and deporting people altogether. In New Jersey, people inside and outside of detention have been fighting together. We got Essex County to cancel their ICE contract. We got the state legislature to pass a bill banning future ICE contracts. It's sitting on Governor Murphy's desk. He needs to sign it. The people of New Jersey want ICE out. He needs to get on board. If Governor Murphy and other political leaders, looking at you, Senator Booker and Senator Menendez, really wanted to, they could end this crisis. Every ICE deportation and every transfer is discretionary. ICE doesn't have to deport or transfer anyone. They could actually just release everyone. Our senators need to speak up and put pressure on Joe Biden and DHS to stop the transfers and release people. But it's not enough to release people from ICE detention if the country, if the county officials just fill the jail cells with people in the criminal, quote, justice system. The whole system of profiting off locking people up has to go. ICE detentions, transfers, and deportations are part of the larger racist system of mass incarceration. There's a guy in here with me at Bergen who has cancer, and another who is 65 years old. These men are not any threat to society in any way. Neither am I. The U.S. is the only home I've ever known. I came here when I was two. I don't know who my birth mother is, and after my father and then my stepmother died, my aunt took me in because I was homeless. Why are we all still locked away in these cages? My aunt is old and ill now, but she is determined to fight to see me come home. She is living for my freedom. We are all living for freedom. That is what we're fighting for. And finally, an article from Caitlin Johnstone at CaitlinJohnstone.com, How to Defeat the Empire. One of the biggest and most consistent challenges of my young career so far 
has been finding ways to talk about solutions to our predicament in a way that people will truly hear. I talk about these solutions constantly, and some readers definitely get it, but others will see me going on and on about a grassroots revolution against the establishment narrative control machine, and then say, okay, but what do we do? Or, you talk about problems but never offer any solutions. Part of the difficulty is that I don't talk much about the old attempts at solutions we've already tried that people have been conditioned to listen for. I don't endorse politicians. I don't advocate starting a new political party. I don't support violent revolution. I don't say that capitalism contains the seeds of its own destruction and the proletariat will inevitably rise up against the bourgeoisie. And in general, I don't put much stock in the idea that our political systems are in and of themselves sufficient for addressing our biggest problems in any meaningful way. What I do advocate over and over and over again in as many different ways as I can come up with is a decentralized guerrilla psy war against the institutions which enable the powerful to manipulate the way ordinary people think, act, and vote. I talk about narrative and propaganda all the time because they are the root of all our problems. As long as the plutocrat-controlled media are able to manufacture consent for the status quo upon which those plutocrats built their respective empires, there will never be the possibility of a successful revolution. People will never rebel against the system while they're being successfully propagandized not to. It will never, ever happen. Most people who want drastic systemic changes to the way power operates in our society utterly fail to take this into account. Most of them are aware to some extent that establishment propaganda is happening, but they fail to fully appreciate its effects, its power, and the fact that it's continually getting more and more sophisticated. They continue to talk about the need for a particular political movement for this or that new government policy, or even for a full-fledged revolution, without ever turning and squarely focusing on the elephant in the room that none of these things will ever happen, as long as most people are successfully propagandized into being uninterested in making them happen. It's like trying to light a fire without first finding a solution to the problem that you're standing under pouring rain. Certainly we can all agree that a fire is sorely needed because it's cold and wet and miserable out here. But we're never going to get one going while the kindling is getting soaked and we can't even get a match lit. The first order of business must necessarily be to find a way to protect our fire starting area from the downpour of establishment propaganda. A decentralized guerrilla psy war against the propaganda machine is the best solution to this problem. By psy war, I mean a grassroots psychological war against the establishment propaganda machine with the goal of weakening public trust in pro-empire narratives. People only believe sources of information that they trust, and propaganda cannot operate without belief. Right now, trust in the mass media is at an all-time low, while our ability to network and share information is at an all-time high. Our psy war is fought with the goal of using our unprecedented ability to circulate information to continue to kill public trust in mass media, not with lies and propaganda, but with truth. If we can expose journalistic malpractice and the glaring plot holes in the establishment narratives about things like war, Julian Assange, Russia, etc., we will make the mass media look less trustworthy. By decentralized, I mean we should each take responsibility for weakening public trust in the propaganda machine in our own way, rather than depending on a centralized group or organization. The more centralized an operation is, the easier it is for the establishment manipulators to infiltrate and undermine it. This doesn't mean that organizing is bad, it just means a successful grassroots psy war won't depend on it. If we're each watching for opportunities to weaken public trust in the official narrative, makers on our own personal time and in our own unique way, using videos, blogs, tweets, art, paper, literature, conversations, and demonstrations, will be far more effective. By guerrilla, 
I mean constantly attacking different fronts in different ways, never staying with the same line of attack for long enough to allow the propagandists to develop a counter-narrative. If they build up particularly strong armor around one area, put it aside and expose their lies on an, an entirely different front. The propagandists are lying constantly, so there is never any shortage of soft targets. The only consistency should be in attacking the propaganda machine as visibly as possible. As far as how to go about that attack, my best answer is that I'm leading by example here. I'm only ever doing things that I advocate, so if you want to know what I think we should all do, just watch what I do. I'm only ever using my own unique set of skills, knowledge, and assets to attack the narrative control engine at whatever points I perceive to be the most vulnerable on a given day. So do what I do, but keep in mind that each individual must sort out the particulars for themselves. We've each got our own strengths and abilities that we bring to the war. Some of us are funny, some are artistic, some are really good at putting together information and presenting it in a particular format. Some are good at finding and boosting other people's high-quality attacks. Everyone brings something to the table. The important thing is to do whatever will draw the most public interest and attention to what you're doing. Don't shy away from speaking loud and shining bright. It isn't necessary to come up with your own complete how-it-is narrative of exactly what is happening in our world right now. With the current degree of disinformation and government opacity, that's too difficult to do with any degree of completion anyway. All you need to do is wake people up in as many ways as possible to the fact that they're being manipulated and deceived. Every newly opened pair of eyes makes a difference, and anything you can do to help facilitate that is energy well spent. Without an effective propaganda machine, the Empire cannot rule. Once we've crippled public trust in that machine, we'll exist in a very different world already, and the next step will present itself from there. Until then, the attack on establishment propaganda should be our foremost priority. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. And now, for a moment of zen, this is Anoni with Drone Bomb Me. Thanks. For listening.
be the one The one that you choose from above After all I'm partly to blame So don't bomb me Blow me from mountains From the mountains and into the sea. The mountains yeah. and into the sea. I'm not so innocent. I blow my head out, explode my crystal guns. My blood, my blood.